Welcome to My Life Chassidus Applied, episode 239. Tonight is the last night of Hanukkah, where we light all the eight flames, and the words of the Rebbe when he spoke to the children in Tovshin Mem Beis. There was a Zeis Hanukkah Sicha, there was a Sicha that Rebbe spoke to the children at the beginning of Hanukkah and also the end of Hanukkah. And he said, when you have all the eight flames, the Rebbe used the word since he gave the example, Sivas Hashem, which was using metaphors from warrior metaphors and battles, the battle over the Yetzirah, the battle over darkness, that you have the full assault because you have all eight flames burning, not one, not two, the whole power that we manifest and we express and we actualize on this night and on this last day of Hanukkah called Zeus Hanukkah. This program is dedicated in honor of Mendel Goldstein upon his bar mitzvah, may grow up to be a chayel and a source of nachas, for the Rebbe and all of Israel, dedicated by his parents, Rabbi Levi and Miriam Goldstein. So let's begin with that, since it's Zeis Hanukkah, literally, while we're doing this program, as it be, we're going right into the last day of Hanukkah, let's talk about a few things about this day. Hanukkah in general, I discussed last week's program, which was the first night of Hanukkah, and previous years as well, and previous episodes, so we're going to focus on the last day. So in addition to what the Rebbe said, put it into very simple terms, which immediately is applied chassidus on its own, that taking the light, the light of Hanukkah is, of course, the light of the soul, Neir Hashem Nishma Sodom. The soul of a human being is the lamp or flame of God. The flame of God is the soul of a human being. We actualize that flame of the soul by doing Neir Mitzvah V'Tere Eir, which is the flame of the mitzvah, of good deeds, and Tere is light. That's how we ignite and we fan the flames of the soul. So each day of Hanukkah has, you do it with a certain measure, has its day, you grow day to day. The last day is the full expression of a human soul. The full expression of everything you have power to achieve is on this day manifest. Even the things that go beyond the natural, which is one of the reasons why it's the eighth day, as we spoke briefly last week, and explained the Chassidus, that eight is shamanus Ahekif. Seven is the cycle of time. It's the cycle and structure of existence. The seven days of the week, the seven years of the sabbatical, the seven midas, emotional attributes. Eight is, signifies transcendence, the eighth day. That's why anything with the number eight is already going higher than, say, the Rishtalshus in the language of Chassidus. In simple language, it means a power to be able to transform, not just to illuminate, but to transform existence because you're coming and accessing something beyond existence. And that's one of the reasons it's the eighth day of Hanukkah. So the eighth day has more than just, it's not just seven plus one. It's not just a cumulative of eight days. It has another quality. The Rebbe often brings from the Eratera, in Eratera from the Tzemach Tzedek, very briefly, but he speaks about it, he compares it to this eighth day of Miluyim, the eight days of the dedication of the temple, which of course Hanukkah is related to that dedication. That's why it's called Hanukkah. They rededicated the temple after it was defiled. So in Eretz and Hanukkah on page Tov Tov Kuf Samach Beis Aleph, he the Rebbe cites this in a number of places that it's uh, it's getting the devil of the eighth being transmitted into the seven, and he brings two different interpretations. That's why he says Yemashmini is called Zeis Hanukkah Zeis Hanukkah Samizbeich Zeis Himalchus, and how is that explained? That that the the two explanations the Rebbe gives is explanation number one is 
that Malchus has the power from a higher force to be able to transmit it into beyond to the lower worlds. In the case of this Chutzal, Pesach Beisimei Bachutz, we can illuminate even darkness and transform it with the power of eight. Or the other way around, that is the Amshach of Atik, from the source of higher than Ishtalshus that goes into Malchus. That in addition to the seven Midas, which is the seven emotions of Zah, Zayr Ampin, that are the source of the energy that Malchus has, the moon receives from the sun, it gets an additional eighth from higher, from the level of Atik, as he says here. So that's where you have Aleph Zion. Zeus has the letter Zion Aleph, Aleph Zion. Aleph Zion can be the Aleph on top of the Zion, or it can be the Zion that's below the Aleph. So the higher explanation is that the Zion, the seven, receives from the Aleph, which is Keser, or the higher, the general higher three levels. And the Rebbe, in several places, reconcile these two interpretations because in order to draw down something lower, you need to reach higher. So both interpretations are connected. In simple English, it means this, that on the eighth day of Hanukkah, we have the power to actually not just illuminate, but to transform, to bring a dimension that is beyond our natural faculties, go deeper into the soul, into the Neir Hashem Nishma Sodom, into the flame, and bring that flame even into the outer outskirts. So the rest of the days of Hanukkah, we do it through illuminating. And here we actually can transform. Now, in order to do that, to transform the lower levels, you need to reach deep, dig deeper and reach deeper into Keser, into the higher source, which is the, the one above the seven that allows the seven to go into the one below the seven. That's in brief. A number of places that I speak about it includes in the Sikha, a very interesting, a very powerful Sikha that was said by Pashabas Pasha Mikhail Zeis Hanukkah Tovshin Yud Gimel. That would be the equivalent of probably 1952, if it was the end of the year unless it was already January, but probably 1952. There the Rebbe also then reviewed, in and it was one of the first, Maimre Kein Siche, he said he doesn't want to bother the people to have to stand up, the audience, as they usually stand up formally for a Maimer. So he said, not to matriach you, not to cause you to exert yourself, and not to exert myself more than necessary. The Rebbe said, I'll say a Maimer more in an informal way. It was a Maimer from the Tzemach Tzedek. And, after the, and the Maimer talks about some of these ideas of bringing from a higher level into existence, which of course is the whole fundamental principle of Judaism in general, uh, that we bring transcendence into imminence, that we bring a higher dimension of ex- that's beyond existence into existence. That's how we elevate our mundane and pedestrian lives to states that are far higher than the regular routines, and so on, which is the eight transmitting into the seven, the eight transforming the seven. And the Rebbe then afterwards said, it says in the the Rebbe didn't say the exact source, but B'nai Yisachar says that Zeis Chanukah, that Zeis Chanukah is a, uh, the eighth day of Chanukah is Mesugal, is a special day for birth, that barren people, people who are barren, God forbid, should be able to give birth. It opens up basically the barren womb, what we call Pekadakaris. And the Rebbe explained that this is based on, it says in Kabbalah and Exodus, that on Hanukkah radiate the Yud Gimel Middas the 13 attributes of compassion, which again is higher than the 10 spheres, because it brings also from Keser, the three Gimel Reshim, that's higher than Keser. That's higher than the ten spheres, and that's why it's able to open up even when regular channels are closed. It has a power to open up, especially on this day of Zeis Chanukah, to open up blocked channels, 
which is the idea of someone that is unfortunately anakoda, someone that is barren for some reason is unable to channel a blessing of birth, is unable to be achieved. On the eighth day of Hanukkah, we have that special power. This is the Rebbe said all on that for bringing Pasha Miketz, so it's Hanukkah Tovshin Yud Gimel. Then the Rebbe afterwards went and 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 and, and, and and indicated to different people who apparently needed such a blessing that they should say L'chaim. So what you see from this is that it isn't just a, an esoteric concept, it actually has practical application. That when things are blocked, this day of Zeis Hanukkah has a power, an additional power, a qualitative new power to actually break open and, and, and um, open up hitherto um, closed channels because you're being mamshik from the eight into the seven, so you have an, a higher power connected to birthing. So I thought that's a very powerful statement. And he connects also to the Mimer of the Tzemach Tzedek, where he talks about the power of giving birth. Now, birth, of course, means something much broader than just actual birth. So this is a great opportunity to give a blessing to all those that need a blessing for children. So here's the Zeis Chanek is a Yem's Gula for that. But as the Rebbe explains in different places, birthing is also the birth that we give to our students and to people we have insp- who we inspire and have influence over. So it's also considered a birthing. Kolam Alamad is ben Chavera Teira, someone who teaches another wisdom. Teira, it's as if they gave birth to them. So Levonecha is also Talmidim. Children are also students. But it also means even in a broader sense, any type of block, any channel, that for whatever reason naturally, or in the regular routine of things, in the regular cycle of seven, seems to be closed, here's a day that can open up that channel. I thought it's a, a tremendous point to make on the night of Zeis Hanukkah. It's a blessing that all of us have. Whatever area where we have these blocks or these impediments, that a channels open up on Zeis Hanukkah. Okay. So with that, let us now go to, uh, we'll connect it also to Hey Tavis is this week. On Thursday will be Hey Tavis. Hey Tavis is 30, um, uh, 30, 32 years ago was the psak that came out from the court, from the secular court, establishing the ownership of Agudas Chidah Chabad over the Svarim, something that we saw touched the Rebbe very deeply. So I've spoken about Hey Tevis a number of times. I'm not going to go over the whole depth of it. I'll just say that connecting to what we're discussing here, the Chanukah, and of course it comes in proximity right after Chanukah, it too was like an open of a new channel. In a certain way, until that ruling was ruled, we did not have an established in the legal system of the physical world, the material world, a ratification and a um, um, vindication of the relationship between Arebbe, his Svorim, and Chassidim. As as Judge Sifton spelled out in his ruling, that was what he wanted to establish. So very similar to Yutas Kislev, we say, why do we really care? The Alter Rebbe writes in a letter to Rabbi Levi Yitzchik the, the great thing that even the Sari HaMaluchi, even the ministers, secular ministers, the non-Jewish ministers in the, in the Tsar's government recognize the Niflois, the wonders that happen. As the Rebbe explains, because that is the ultimate purpose of Teda, is transforming the world. It's not just for the Jews. It's not just within the holy circle of the inner sanctum of holiness, of Gdusha, but it's to transform, make a dira So when you have the world recognizing something, it is indicative of the emes, the truth of the divine, actually permeating even a world that may have been initially resistant, a hostile world to the divine. 
So it's not you need it, but it demonstrates and expresses the great power of Teda in general and of Chassidus particularly, which is similar to why it says that Parshamat and Teda is in the chapter called Yisrei. And as the Medrashim and the Zayar bring, because the, you needed Yisrei's acknowledgement before the Teda was given. So the question is asked, well, do you need Yisrei's acknowledgement? Yisrei was a, was a prophet among non-Jews. He was a sorcerer, or he was a magician, or he was a brilliant man. But what do you need? His endorsement? God wants to give the Torah. The Jews had just suffered for 210 years in Egypt. But Yisrei represented, because he knew the, all the Chochmes Elam all the wisdoms and all the different spiritual systems, when he said, God your God, meaning the God that the Jews experienced, is greater than all the Lakims, all the different deities that he was familiar with, that is an acknowledgement from within existence itself, from existence itself, you're able to acknowledge. And that has a tremendous power because the credibility that that creates, it shows that it's to say that someone that comes from a holy place recognizing the power of Torah is great. But to say that a world that initially may be hostile and be not only hostile, but mamish menaget, aniva afsi the world that says I and nothing else should acknowledge, eneid movade, that nothing but God, that is true transformation. And Hey Tevis has an element of that because it established forever, without any more ability to question, the eternity of the Rebbe being manifest in his Svarim, Anon Nafshik Sovis Yahavis, his manifest his eternity in the works, because the works, the Teira that he presents, that lives on. And that's what a Rebbe is. His Chaim, his life is Chaim Ruchnim, not Chaim Sarim, not a flesh. And where do you manifest in his, direct, in, his, in his teachings and his directives? And that was established in a, very pers- in a very powerful way that it wasn't private property and it wasn't a personal thing. It was a global thing, a universal thing for all people. Tzibur ein emes, that the, the global entity that the Rebbe represents, Achsidus represents, lives on forever and ever. That was the demonstration, and we spoke about this in the previous years. This is a brief of it. So it has a similar concept to Hanukkah, as I discussed last week. Hanukkah is Nitzchi. The Ramban says these are the flames that will never be, be extinguished. Why? Because they come from darkness. Anything that comes from darkness, the darkness itself is ratified now. So darkness is no longer a contradiction. On the contrary, it's an asset. It's the fuel that feeds the light. And finally, Parsha Vayigash. Vayigash has a similar concept. We know that Yehuda and Yosef, they come together. Yehuda and Yosef. Yosef represents Teir. Yehuda represents Maisa. Talmud Gadol Shemevil De Maisa. That we have Talmud and we have Maisa. Ultimately, there will be the ultimate Mashiach and Mashiach Ben David from the house of Yehuda, of David, comes from the Shevet Yehuda. But before, preceding that is a Mashiach Ben Yosef. And it's very much based on this, on this Parsha where Yosef and Yehuda have a confrontation, but then as the Haftarah concludes, they ultimately, the H Yosef and the H Yehuda will come together and will understand, Avdi Nasi, David, Avdi Nasi, that David will be, David from, from Beis Yehuda will be the ultimate king, but we have to go through first Talmud first, because without direction of Teirah, you don't know how Maisha should, what the Maisha should be. But Mashiach comes, it says Maisha God, why? Because the world itself, will exude and tell us what is right and what is wrong. So the Rebbe asks a question, in the Sikh of Vayigash, 
the Rebbe wrote, wrote with his handwriting the answer to this question, in addition to how the Sikha was prepared based on the Sikhas, the Rebbe added a whole, a very powerful paragraph. He asked the question. The Gemara says, Talmud Gadol Shemeva Demais, in, in resolving the question, which is greater, study or action? So you would think, Maisa is Maisa Weika, action. Says the Gemara, no, Talmud Gadol Shemeva Demaisa. Why? Because Talmud Gadol has both. Talmud has both. It brings also to action. You study and action. Action you can just do without necessarily knowing. Then it says in Svarim, Medeshmul, and other places, the Mashiach will come, Lasud Love, be Maisa Gadol. The halacha will change. Obvious question. The logic remains. Talmud has both qualities, learning and action. Why would it be Maisa Gadol when Mashiach comes? And the Rebbe writes the following. I briefly summed it up, but I'll spell it out even further. Writes, Why do we learn Teda? Because we don't naturally feel what is right and what is wrong. We don't. When you wake up in the morning, you feel you're hungry, you feel you're tired, you feel you have physical needs. Spiritual needs are harder to access. So we need a tater to tell us, this is what you should do now, this is what you should do, what you shouldn't do, when you do it, how you do it, and so on. A, and the Rebbe brings there, a, natu- a healthy person would never put his hand in fire, just like a healthy animal would not jump into fire. So how is it possible that a person would do something that transgresses God's will, which essentially causes damage to you because you're putting your hand or you're being in fire by doing something that's destructive to your machine, not aligning it to the way the architect of life wanted it to be done. And we should only be doing mitzvahs because a mitzvah nourishes you. Would a normal person put their hand in fire? The only reason they may, God forbid, is because they don't know it's fire or they don't know that fire damages is hurtful. That's the world in which we live. As the Alter Rebbe says in Periklam and Vav and Tanya, hell and Vehester, God concealed his presence and many concealments to the point where we live in a world where we can convince ourselves that we don't see and feel the divine and we actually don't feel it. So comes the Teda and says, here's what, here's what happens. Shabbos comes, this is what you're supposed to do and what you're not supposed to do. Every morning, every day, every moment, every all the things the Torah regulates is to reveal us to us, because we don't naturally, instinctively, and intuitively feel what is what we should be doing. So we need to look at the calendar. Now it's Hanukkah. Here's the mitzvah of Hanukkah. Here's the tefillahs. You say, "La'as is love when the world will be transformed, and it will be permeated with the divine will of the architect. So every part of creation will exude on its own." And recognize. So then we will naturally feel. That's why it says in Medrash that if a person goes over a Shemitah or sometimes it's a Shabbos and try to take a fruit off a tree, it'll say the tree itself will cry out. Even Mekir Tizak. The stones of the walls will cry out because the world will be permeated with the divine. So everything will recognize the divine. Then you don't need Talmud. You don't need to learn. Just like you naturally feel hunger or naturally feel thirst or naturally feel fatigue, you'll naturally gravitate to what is right. So that's why Maisa Godel. Because like I said, the world transformed is a whole different story. That's when Yehuda becomes the leader. Maisa Godel, Yehuda, Haida, acknowledgement. But to get there, you need to start with Talmud. Because that is at the end of the process. Throughout Golas, throughout the years, you first need Mashiach ben Yasef. You first need Yasef to be the leader. Yasef from the word Hisafa, addition studying Torah, knowledge that informs us what to do until we train ourselves to the point that we become natural natural vehicles and natural channels for the divine will. 
So then why will we learn Teir Lashed Lavi? So the Rebbe brings there from Egeres HaKedr, the end of Simen's Chavav, we'll learn Teir not to know right from wrong, but in order to be meyached har yechudim, to create deeper unifications and deeper transformations and deeper elevations in holiness itself. So there you have a connection between all the three, Tchanikah, Zezchanikah, Heitavis, Vayigash. And of course the application is that that's the goal. The goal is not just that we follow instructions, but you feel it within. You learn Chassidus, what happens is you begin to feel and sense what is right. You begin to sense higher presence. You begin to sense a higher state consciousness. You begin to sense divinity in your life. There's always, there is the concealment, but at all the years of work, we're told by the Rebbe that the world is more and more refined to the point where we can come to a point where we can actually naturally feel. And you see the world itself today, much more humanitarian, much more generous, virtuous, charitable, things that were unheard of once, once uh, just a few hundred years ago or even less. So the world is being transformed and we are obviously have a tremendous role to play, a fundamental role, a leadership, proactive role to play in the unfolding of this drama. Okay. Let me just give a few cross-references to these discussions. Episodes on Sreshanika, Heitavis, and Vayigash. Episodes 49, 94, 144, 145, and 193. Now, let me just use this as an opportunity. These cross-references are, can, be, can be found. You go to MeaningfulLife.com slash MyLife. You'll find all the archives of these programs that I just mentioned and many and all of them, all the 238 previous ones, and they're all time-stamped in the YouTube, not on the mobile phone. You have to do it on your desktop or laptop where you can access and you click on the YouTube version of the videos which are embedded on our site and other sites and you'll find timestamp where you can just go straight to the topic that you're looking for. Okay, there you also can find the forum where you can submit any question anonymously, confidentially, and I keep thanking you for your questions. They continue to enlighten me, and hopefully I, bring, I reciprocate and bring some light in return. And I'll see this as a joint effort, so anyone has any comments, feedback, insights, or thoughts that I did not mention, or thoughts that you see in Sichas and my modem, or just in general, that, that you feel is important, please submit it, and I'll be happy to read it. I really try to see this as a joint and mutual the uh, reciprocal effort. Okay. Now, the last few weeks we've been speaking about women rabbis. So, received a letter, which I thought is worthwhile reading, and addressing this important topic, women rabbis, role of women today, but specifically, are we doing all we can to empower women today? So I'm not even seeing this as a follow-up. I see this as a subject of its own. I actually was surprised when I started looking at how many times I've discussed this in the past, Quite a, quite a few episodes. I'll mention them after I finish the points here. So let me read this note. And, uh, and it's a topic that is uh, vital because it affects all of us, not just women. It affects men. It affects the children. It affects um, life in, all, in so many ways because women are the Ikeres is the foundation of our homes, in many ways the foundations of our communities. And when God created the human being, Zachar Nekeva Baraisa, male, female. So it's very clearly two halves of one divine unity. So here's the question. We have an issue which is not going away. You yourself said that you, can get many, that you get many questions regarding the women's role in Yiddishkeit. Women are going off the derech, and women who are not yet observant are turned off by this. What is the solution? We have a Rebbe who told us ages ago that we must do what we must do. 
Our generation is different in that it is very important that women be given the place and treatment that they deserve and facilitate as much as possible to participate in matters of Torah and mitzvahs in order to draw them close to matters of Yiddishkeit. And the approach today is that women learn even the oral law. As Lubavitchers, what steps have we taken in this regard? On the other hand, the story with Rabbi Riskin, who spent hours in Yechidus with the Rebbe on this very subject, has responded to the call of our times. The Rebbe said about him and his institutions that they are modern Orthodox on the outside and Chabad on the inside. I never heard that before. I'd like to find a source for that, but I'm reading it based on this writer's, um, this writer's uh, I guess, authority. He began reaching, teaching Gemara to women long ago, and we are just waking up to... Uh, and we are just waking up to the idea. It still has not arrived at our mezdus, at our institutions. He has institutions where women are trained, including shimush, to paskin and to adjudicate, adjudicate, I should say, to adjudicate as judges on the bezdin. We, including our poskim and the leaders of our community, are light years behind this, despite our own, very own Rebbe giving us the green light to move forward. It creates a huge chil Hashem when non has find out that the Rebbe instructed the women to learn Gemara, and, he's, and he is blatantly disregarded. One woman, one woman refused to believe the Rebbe said this, and she countered, how can you call him a Rebbe and they don't teach it in the Chabad institution that she is familiar with? Unfortunately, we have assimilated into the Haredi world in this regard. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to figure out what you meant when you said last week that women have a dominant role and it has to be with kol kfuda, basmelech prima, which means the glory of the princess is internal. But we, have, but we do not have to bend over backwards. That's the quote from me. I realize that you are concerned about pirza. Pirza means making a, a break, trying to break something that is a uh, tear a certain way, a certain standard, and pirza would be breaking the standard. On the other hand, we do have enough poskin which permit a woman to paskin, to rule, in other words, on halachic matters. Furthermore, the Rebbe, when he re- retracted his original consent to Rabbi Riskin to allow women to dance with the Sefer Torah on Simchus Torah, it was not because of pirza, but because of a lack of precedent. Well, Pirtz and lack of precedent is, uh, can almost be synonymous. If we are to facilitate as much as possible in allowing the women to participate in matters of Torah, then we must, quote-unquote, break our heads, as you say, for the women who feel they can contribute to the community in this regard and find sneeze ways for this to happen. This conversation is taking place with the obvious elephant in the room, which is that from women are working full-time, they are doctors, lawyers, even running for elected offices, the latter with the support of the Rabbonim of, the, of their cities, Yiddishkeit, Rahman al-Islam, must not be made to look like a farce. Thank you for your attention to this matter. You called to, and I wish you and your whole family a frail chanchanik and only revealed good. I read the letter exactly as is. I know it may infuriate some people. As you know, I read letters not necessarily that I agree with, but it's important to hear the voice, and not hear the silence voices. I'd rather take a different approach. You have a voice, even if it's something you may not agree with. Respond. And that's what I'm going to do now. So in spirit, there are things here that I completely agree with. There are some technical things that I do not find in the Rebbe's words. So I'm not sure where this idea of women paskining halachas or shilas, let me just address that immediately, comes from the Rebbe. Uh, the Rebbe was very careful in this regard. So let me just spell out how I understand it briefly. As I said, I've talked about it in previous... I absolutely, and not just me, I absolutely believe that the Rebbe himself initiated in the early 50s, 
initiated that women should be leaders of the community. But in a Torah way, in a halachic way, in a tzniyazdik way, in a chzidish way, he established Neshayu B'nai's Chabad, the Lubavitch Women's Organization, which really, as I think the Rebbe referred to, is really for all women in the world, all Jewish women in the world. You don't do that unless you're empowering women. If it's just a woman should remain home and just take care of the children, you don't establish an organization which is about teaching other women, reaching out, influencing. Every shliach, every emissary and ambassador of the Rebbe, the Rebbe would always refer to that person's spouse as your partner, equal partner. And that's how it's established. Rabbi and Mrs. so-and-so, directors of Chabad here and here. And the Rebbe would ask, what are you doing? And you see the activities, the, the initiatives were, some were male-oriented, for example, putting on film, but some are female-oriented. The three particular campaigns of lighting candles, of kashrut, and of kosher, and of tars mishpacha, family purity. But all, but the, and then, of course, the main emphasis of the Rebbe on the six mitzvahs that are not bound by time, that including faith, Love of God, love of others, and so on. The learning of Torah and as you mentioned. And I went over this in previous episodes. I'm going to soon give you references at length. Famous sikhs of the Rebbe about women learning Torah today. How it has changed. Even the most courageous schools today for girls. Even in the most courageous communities. And essentially that it's vital, not just for the women for their own dignity, because of the challenges we face today. And women are... Are, are, are looking around and see other women, they, they will feel suppressed. That's, that's a technical, that's a minimal reason. The main reason is because women actually do have leadership power. And we're not living in the shtetl where there was different type of guidelines and different type of environment. And additionally, the power of the feminine energy, which is in the cave to save of God, is a Mashiachdik energy, a Guladik energy. So it's obvious as we go toward the Gula, which is so much part of the spreading of Torah, Chsidis, to lead us into the redemption, that women take an active and leadership role. However, you want to make sure that this is not because we're satisfying women who are clamoring for equality or attention. They may have good arguments, but we're not here to placate, placate someone or to patronize. And we're not here to just answer to someone who's demanding something. We have a Torah, Torah is Eternal Torah. So here's where you have to cross, not cross the line. Just because some women, some people feel that I have to have this in this position or that's the only way I will feel respected because I'll be an equal to a man, that's not the criteria. Just like a man can't come and say, hey, we live in a new world and I want to have certain rights that the Torah hasn't given me until now. It doesn't work that way. There's a God who gave us a Torah. The Torah is definitely very vast and has many ways to apply it, and different generations, different times, there are different challenges. So when we, that's why it's so vital to have a Rebbe who tells us where, yeah, where not. Not everything goes just because in the name of feminine leadership. But this is not, God forbid, I'm not in any way suggesting someone will say, okay, so what you're really saying is you're packaging a nice term, but you're still putting us into, into a box, women, that is, and limiting it. No, absolutely not. I'm just suggesting that we have to know how to do this the right way. So openness is not liberalism. We're talk- not talking about being lenient with Torah guidelines, God forbid. We're talking on the contrary. Take the Torah and using the, the opportunities today that women have and create strong movements. Today you have 
societies of women that are powerhouses, cultivating talent, studying together, praying together, inspiring others. By all means, we need it today because women have such an impact on society. And we have to empower women. Once upon a time, you lived in a shpeshtetl. Everyone was Yerush Shemayim. And it, was, it wasn't necessary because we weren't living in dark times where you needed so much uh, outreach and inspiration reaching the larger world. The city. So then the roles were far more limited, both the men's role and the women's role. You also didn't find men just going and traveling and becoming shluchim in other parts of the world. So everybody lived in that community. I'm not going to go into the whole, uh, whole I don't want to elaborate, over-elaborate on this. But if you study, you'll understand and see, yes, that there is a tremendous role. We have to, f- and I will absolutely acknowledge that we're not doing enough to empower the women of our day and our time. We do have to put our heads together and figure out ways. But not just doing whatever seems fitting or whatever some people feel is appropriate. We have Torah for this, and we have guidelines, and we have directives. The things that Rebbe said, Befeders, the things that Gedele Yisrael embraced, absolutely. Something that comes up that someone says, maybe we should do, maybe we shouldn't do, this is where we get into Pirza and an unprecedented, that even though there may be an idea to empower women, but you don't want to do something that suddenly creates a new precedent, and then you have to deal with that, and then someone says, okay, let's do something else. So even though that may be permitted in those circumstances, but then you open up a Pandora's box as well. So the key here is to recognize, and I think this is the key, it's not, only the, it's not just that women have opportunities, but the respect that I will absolutely state for the record, that women have been mistreated, have been placed as second-class citizens, including in the religious world. But that's not based on Torah. That's based on male hierarchies. We have to get it back to the place in the Torah that said God created the man and woman the divine image, Zohar Nekeva Baraisim, they each have their roles, they have many overlapping roles, they both have that dignity. And when people have that dignity, then you find which is the way that was the right Torah way for that person to do it. So it's not the job you give them that makes them equal, it's the respect you give them to live up to their potential and their great um, destiny and mission in this world. That's my thoughts on this. As far as cross-referencing, let me tell you, here's a bunch of episodes. If you really want to hear my entire picture on it, I by no means covered it all here exhaustively. So I refer you to episodes 11, 47, 48, 65, 67, 99, 106, 127, 131, 146 and 147, 183, 186, and 188. In addition to the last episodes of 236 and 238. This just alone tells you how many questions came in on the topic and how important of an issue it is, and that's why I do not hesitate to address it further, and by all means, invite and welcome your comments. On a practical note, I would encourage anyone, talking about women, and men as well, who have an influence on women, either their spouses, their daughters, family members, and so on, we have to find ways to give women the ability to channel their talents and their skills there's so many ways to do this today. Technology allows tremendous ways to do it, actually in even more tzniyazdika ways than in the past. In the past, you had to actually be there present. Today, you can write, you can design, you can, through music, through art, so many different ways that you can do it in a way that's very modest and very, very consistent with all the laws of dignity that the Torah expects of us. And for that matter, we have to do the same for men. I find, you know, if you really ask me the question, I would also go the reverse. 
Are, is everything being done to empower men? But that deserves a bracha la'atzmei. It's another discussion. But it also deserves as much discussion as well because that there's much to be desired where that stands. Okay. Since we're talking about potential and capabilities, so we lead this, this leads us into the next question. How does someone know what he's capable of? And here's how the questioner put it. You often cite the Medrash, You, he's referring to me. Which is the Medrash that says that God said to Moses, to Moshe Rabbeinu, I only ask them that which they're capable of doing. I cite it so often because the Rebbe cited it so often because this was a fundamental principle that if something is asked of you, requested, or commanded, you have the power to do it. If there's a challenge that, that, you, that comes your way, it means you have the ability to rise to the occasion. So the questioner asks, how does someone know what he's capable of? I have a Yetzirah, past experiences, etc. I don't know if I'm too relaxed or this is the best I can do. And doesn't Kabbalah soil mean that you follow the letter of the law regardless of whether you have koiches? Kabbalah soil means you just follow, you, you accept the yoke, and you do it, the, you follow exactly what you're told regardless whether you have the abilities. Thank you. Okay. Very practical question. So let's first of all say this. As I just stated, how do you know what you're capable of? If it's something that you're asked to do by the Torah or commanded to do, it means you're capable. So that's the first thing. Because the Torah and God specifically would not ask you to do something you're not capable of doing. So that's the first way we know. Now, there are things that were asked, that were commanded to do. There are things that are optional. But since it's optional, it also means you're capable of doing it. It means because it wouldn't be even made as a suggestion, whether it's lefnimish or sadin, beyond the letter of the law, whether it's going a little further of your comfort zone. So you open up a Tanya in chapter 15, he talks about going out of our comfort zone, going beyond our regilis, our natural routines. If that's expected of us to be called aveda, that means we're capable of it. So anything that is coming from a pure source, a Torah source, Torah authority, someone that's representing that, a Rebbe, and saying, be a shliach, a shlucha, it means you're capable. That's, my, to me, the first indicator. Now, there are other indicators as well. Other indicators are, very often, we don't know exactly what we're capable of. Sometimes it happens, there are no accidents, but sometimes it happens unplanned. You suddenly left to do a job that you didn't think you could do, you end up doing it, not bad. So you have to sometimes follow your instincts. People have a sense. Some people know they have a musical inclination. Some people are artistic. Some are writers. Some are people people. Some are organizers. Some are very good at strategy. Others are good at execution. So there are many ways to look inside yourself and say, here are things that I've been blessed with. Am I actualizing it? And then there's, of course, the mentor, Mashpia Selecharav. Going to someone that knows you well, that you trust, and asking them, what do you think? I can do that I'm not doing. What do you think I'm capable of? This is what good educators, good teachers, mentors, even parents, sometimes friends, that can help you along. Sometimes we can be blinded, either blinded by not seeing something we have a strength, or sometimes blinded the other way around. We think we can do something we're not that great at, which is perfectly fine. Every one of us has tremendous capabilities. Will we discover in our lifetime everything we're capable of? Halavai. I can't say that's to be the case because I'm sure there's so much potential a person has that there's always more. So 
But that doesn't mean there isn't much more that you could actually actualize right now. Ask yourself that question. Here we're coming from Hanukkah, last day of Hanukkah. The Nisham is now full, full blast, fully alive. All eight flames are burning of your soul. So the high, the flame is at, this, at its highest. Ask yourself, is your flame, is your neshama giving off the light, as much light that it could give off? Is it warming as much as it could warm? Is it as restless in a healthy way as, as, as it should be? There are so many questions you could ask, and if you're focused on really fulfilling your calling, these questions will lead you to say, okay, let me try. And that brings me to the final point, which is experiment. Do something and see. And then you suddenly realize, you know what? I'm, I can do this. Hook up with others that do it. That's what we learn. We incubate. We learn from the better ones, from the best. And that's from people who are more senior, more veteran in the area that you have interest in. The key is not to sit on your laurels. The key is not to sit on the sidelines, but to make a move. Jump in. You may not always be great at the first time. You try. You try this. You try that. And that's how we grow. Fear is our great enemy. The fear of failure, the fear of being mocked, the fear of your own inner self-consciousness, or whatever it may be. Regarding the Kabbalah sale, follow the letter, regardless of whether you have keiches, not, not exactly. The Kabbalah sale does not mean, the Rebbe says, Mesir Snefesh is not jumping up 10 floors. I mean, you're not capable of that. That can't be expected of you. Kabbalah sale means that even if you're not in the mood, or even if you don't see yourself having the ability, you do it anyway, and then you discover you have the ability. Kabbalah sale doesn't mean that you do something you don't have an ability to do. It means you have the ability, you just don't know yet. Or you don't have the confidence. So Kabbalah sale pushes it through. You could argue that Kabbalah sale maybe opens up new channels as well. Like the Rebbe told, Friedrich Rebbe told a potential donor who asked, he asked for a dedication for some books to print. And he said, I don't have the money. So the Friedrich Rebbe said, if you make achlote, the Abish will open up tzenetis, new channels, they'll have the money. So the Kabbalah sale can push it through and open up new doors. But it all still means that you have the capacity. Even is beyond, you're every, very much beyond, but it's also beyond what you're capable of. No one's asking you to be like someone else. Look, a famous story with Rab Susha, that he was crying. Why? He's, that, he's, that he's concerned that he didn't live up to be Zusha. Not that he didn't live up to be someone else. Okay, with that, let us lead to the next question. And that is, a question about possibilities. If one's containers are not aligned with their spiritual light due to a chemical imbalance, as an example, can the container be trained to regulate it and adjust itself to its spiritual capacity? Okay, let me read the letter and then I'll elaborate and explain. Can a container regulate itself through training and education to receive right amount of light and channeling to be rewired anew in a human being? What do the Kabbalah and Hasidic thoughts say about this? If the container from a biological point of view has chemical imbalance and neurons have this pattern of receiving too much light so the whole system breaks down eventually, or will it be necessary with pharmaceutics, pharmaceuticals or pharmaceutics to, in order to not widen the container and the receiving too much too soon for the rest of one's life? And that would be the healthy approach that is supporting a mystical and spiritual journey. How much self-knowledge and study Mystical experiences and learning what it takes to be healed from such a biological condition, where the matter is not adjusting to the, when, where matter is not adjusting to the spiritual capacity. 
Is that even possible that self-knowledge can actually solve the issue of a difficulty with a container? I'm curious about this, but it is understandably if you don't have the time or opportunity to answer such a complex question. I'm not even sure if it is healthy to get an answer on this matter because it may require more of a more of a person than it is possible to handle. Kind regards. Okay, the question for some may be a little confusing the way it was written, but let me just sum it up as I understand it. The fact of the matter is all of us have energy in containers, what we call in Chassidus and Kabbalah, Eir and Keli. To put it in simple terms, energy is our, our, our energy, our passion, our excitement, our our aspirations, our dreams. Containers is containing it and grounding it in a way that you can actually accomplish it. When a person has a proper balance, so then there's a healthy type of dance structure. Rotsay and Shuv. Tension, resolution. What happens if a person has a lot, a lot of energy? A hyper state, a manic state. But they don't have the containers to contain it. So that can cause problems. The other extreme is also possible. A person has very low energy and there's a lot of containers. But this person is referring to that and he's asking, is it possible to do training or do you need to find medication? So here we, we have to address this from a, in a comprehensive way. If a doctor indeed, and the Torah says go to a doctor, indeed diagnoses bipolar or other chemical imbalances, medication is sometimes necessary or maybe always necessary. Medication is nothing to be ashamed of because in this case, the medication may create a more of a chemical balance. That doesn't mean there aren't things we can also do through study, through prayer, through disciplines. But to suggest that a person can just control themselves and their own chemical structure and chemical imbalances is somewhat delusional. And you have to be accept that. I don't like to use that word, but you have to, I'm being very straight, blunt and straightforward about it. It's case by case. Any good type of therapeutic environment, any type of spiritual instruction would always include both. Would say, okay, if you need medication, take what you need to keep a certain balance, but then come up with a regimen and a plan how we get the Eris and Kalim working together. Now, I hope I understood well the question and I'm trying to provide the answer. So the answer is, we do whatever it takes. Just like a person has a headache, you don't just will it away. Sometimes you need, if it's an unbearable headache, you may need aspirin, you may need an Advil, a Tylenol, whatever. Now, if you can will it away, if you have that ability, God bless you. So there are times we actually need support, just like healing. Healing does not, a doctor does not heal you. Medication does not heal you. It facilitates the healing process within the system. Speeds it up, gets rid of infections or impediments. So we have to do whatever it takes to allow that balance to take place. So I would not say, can a container regulate itself through training and education? Most likely not entirely, because ein chavish mater a person in fetters, a person with a challenge, can usually not see beyond that, and they, because the solution cannot come from the place where the problem exists, so you need a solution from outside, you need an objective party, you may need another force, another someone to speak to, a mentor, and so on. But that doesn't mean there isn't work to be done that can actually help you expand your containers to be able to contain great lights. There are people who have a lot, a lot of energy, tremendous amount of creative energy, tremendous power, and very, it can be very frustrating. So people like that need to be helped to train to know how to contain it, how to channel it, how to ground it, how to harness it properly. It's a much bigger topic, but I think that will suffice for now. Next question. 
Is there a difference between how is there a difference how one would treat depression in a Jew and in a non-Jew? That's an interesting question. Based on Tanya and Prokim Chavov and on, it seems like the approach to helping a Jew would be much different than a non-Jew. It would be very helpful to get clarity on this topic for those in the therapeutic in the therapy field. Thank you. Now I'm not sure what you mean exactly. I think I know what you mean by what he says in Tanya. But it would be good if you spelled it out. So I'll spell out as I understand it. In Tani, he does talk about the battle between Nefshalikis and Nefshabamis. And basically, when you're dealing with depression, how to address it in that context. Since a non-Jew does not have a Nefshalikis, as he says in chapter two, 1 and 2 in Tanya, it's Nefshashenis be Yisrael. So, the, so then you could say, since he's dealing, grappling primarily with an animal soul, does he have the same type of strengths and challenges when it comes to depression and uh, Simcha joy? However, as I think I pointed out a number of times, in a famous sikha of Tovshin Mem Aleph, Yud Beis Tammuz, famous, I don't know how famous is, but famous to me, the Rebbe points out that every human being, even a non-Jew, has a me'ain, has like an animal and divine soul, based on the Pasuk in Kehelis, Ruach HaOdom Elo Lamaila, the spirit of man rises above, Ruach HaBehemi Yeredes Lamata, the spirit of the animal goes, descends below, and this is referring to all human beings who are created in the divine image and hence have some element of free will, especially in regard to their laws of Shev Mitzvah and laws of morality and virtue. That's why they're accountable. So they too have a struggle between morality and immorality, between selfishness and selflessness. So it may be very different, and it is very different perhaps than a Jew's struggle, but the struggle is there. And therefore, I would say that whatever it says about depression in Tanya can also be applied to a non-Jew, depending, of course, taking into account everything I've just mentioned here. So the fact, just like within Jews themselves, there's different ways to apply those principles based on their own particular state of mind and where their animal soul and divine soul stand. There's the Benini, there's the Tzadik, there's the tzadik with Tevle and Tzadik Varali, there's the Rosh Tevle and Rosh Varali. So we have many levels within the Jewish people themselves. So the point is, that depression, as he speaks there, the idea of being demoralized, demoralized is never healthy, not for a Jew, not for a non-Jew, because it weakens you, as he gives the example, that you can't fight your battles. So anyone looking for, for purpose in life, looking to live up to, their, to, val- to a value-based life, and a, mor- a moral and ethical life, and has the challenges of whether it's narcissism or selfishness or greed or all the other uh, the elements that uh, the animal soul poses, can, have, can be open, prone to depression. And that's why you have the answer that no, you cannot weaken yourself. How you access your divine spark in a non-Jew as opposed to how a Jew may activate their divine is, is, it requires a study of its own. But in many areas, especially in initial steps, I would say there are a lot, a lot of similarities. And I would apply the same principles in a therapeutic environment, obviously tailored to the individual that you're speaking to. This requires, again, more discussion, but suffice it for now. Okay. The next question, which is, what can I do about same-gender attraction? I'm not going to read the entire letter, first of all, because viewer discretion advised, and I don't want to read all the explicit details. But the bottom line is someone articulates very strongly their, their simple attraction to same-gender and not to the opposite gender, and very graphically. And I appreciate your writing, but I really feel that it's not necessary for me to read it in all detail because the theme is very clear. People deal with this issue. Um, 
the person does conclude this, so I have a spiritual, and so spiritual answers I need. I'm hoping I've given enough detail for someone to discern the roots of my issue and provide a way to return to the natural emotional desires of my heart to the opposite gender. Okay. So, firstly, I want to just refer you to some episodes where I discuss this in more detail. Episodes 12 and 13, 79 and 80, 147, 180, and 235. And I I don't want to repeat everything I said then because I I believe I covered it relatively quite thoroughly. Um, But I will say the following. You're absolutely right. It is spiritual. Because at the end of the day, sexuality, intimacy, are part of the way the human being was created by whom? By God. We're not man-made creatures. We're not machines made by men or women. We're divinely created. And sexuality is a part of that creation. And it's part of the mystery. So where do you want to find out about your sexuality most? In comic books? On television? In serious books? In movies? film, other people, parents, it's all going to give you a certain man-made version of it. The best place to understand sexuality is going back to the source code, to the creator, to the first cause that put it in place in the first place. Find out what sexuality is according to the Torah. So you'll say, where can I look? The best place I can refer you to is read my chapter on intimacy and toward a meaningful life. It distills and sums up the Torah view on intimacy, which is the real name in Torah for sexuality. So, and there are many other books, many other books. There's a Lamb's book, the, the, the Jewish Way in, in Love and Marriage, and there are other books that talk about this topic. So the first thing I would recommend to anyone is get informed information. What is sexuality according to God? Because that's the closest to the purest form of sexuality we will ever reach. That's not distorted by social factors, by life experiences, by distortions, by being violated, by molestation, by rape, etc., etc., or other reactions that people have, whatever reason they decide that they want to pursue certain sexual desires and pleasures. Those are all man, human beings' efforts. Find out what is sexuality in its purest form. It's in in its quintessential model. And then begin to try to align yourself to what that standard is, like anything in life. Someone say, you know, I have a kruma cup. I, I think of things and I, I distort things. Or I'm told that I distort things. Most people won't necessarily recognize it. So what's the way to learn? You go to someone that has a glycha cup, that has that thing straight. Someone plays music. You listen to the masters and you see how they play. You always go to the perfect standard, or as close to perfect standard, even in human interactions. You learn business. You learn from someone that does it better than you. You learn the, you learn the ropes. You learn the tricks of the trade. The same thing here. Here even more so. You want to learn what it is, sexuality. And what does it mean to me before we start saying I have an urge for this or an inclination for this or attraction for this or that for that. That does not negate where you are, but you want to be more informed and learn more about the entire topic. And I referred you to the other episodes. So that's my general first step approach. Then find someone to talk to who understands the Torah approach. And then you have to figure out how to create a a um, guidelines, a basically a uh, game plan for your life to live up to your potential, your great potential, the great your great potential for your of your sexuality, whether it's a man or a woman, and all the challenges we may face. You want to always have the healthy model to work with, instead of starting off with a model that may be flawed in the first place. Okay. 
Um, now, one follow-up, then we'll do the Chassidus question. The follow-up is, this is connected, of course, to the same issue, a thought on why therapy for homosexuals has failed. In episode 235, I spoke about the topic. So someone writing up, so as a follow-up, writes the following. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, just a thought on perhaps why, quote-unquote, conversion therapy for homosexuals has largely been a failure. Traditionally, therapy to co- convert homosexuals into heterosexuals has completely focused on getting rid of same gender attraction. In other words, it has focused all it has focused all on a person's energy and attention on the negative thing that they are trying to change or get away from. This is This is opposite of the way of chassidus, or at least the aveda of derashvi, or at least the, the the work of the seventh generation, where we are taught to focus all our energy on the positive qualities or achievements that we are striving for, instead of the negative, getting away from the negative to focus on the positive. I submit that conversion therapy could be more effective. If instead of trying to get rid of same gender attraction, which is ultimately just a taiva, a desire that a person may never fully stop feeling, they instead focus the therapy on building the ability to have a healthy, loving, and intimate heterosexual relationship, which is the positive goal. Once they are able to do that, homosexual taivas desires take on the same context as any other usher taiva, any other un, uh, forbidden desire, and doesn't seem to innately and doesn't seem so innately a part of who a person is, quote-unquote. Okay? Thank you for that comment. There's much to say on that. It's also um, a good point, more than a good point, and I will, I'm sure I have more opportunity to elaborate on this. We now go, as the custom is, as we, before we conclude with the essays, we go to the chassidus question of the week. So every week we take a question on chassidus itself, even though all of this is chassidus applied, but a question in a mimer or in a concept and so on. So here's the question about trust versus action connected to this past, these week's parshas. So these week's parshas, we talk about Yosef and his brothers. And of course, the end of parsha of Yeshev, we hear how Yosef was sold into slavery, ends up in prison for not 10 years, but 12 years. The end of the Parsha Vayeshev concludes, Zohar, the Saramashkim, the Saramashkim, the minister of drink, who was with him in prison, and who Yasef interpreted his dreams, he doesn't remember him once he comes out of prison, he doesn't remember him, and he forgets him, forgets Joseph. Even though he had, he had promised him that when I come out, I will remind Pharaoh of you. Until the next Parsha, Vayimi Kates, Shnasayim Shona, two more years pass, the end of two years, Pare has a cholam, has a series of dreams, and that's when the Saramashkim remembers, and that's when it comes out of prison. Says Rashi right at the end, um, by Yosef about that what, ha- what 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 happened here. So he said because Yosef depended on the minister of drink on the Saramashkim and did not rely on God, that's why he was punished to stay two more years in prison. So here's what this person is asking, dear Rabbi Jacobson. On Shabbos we were talking about Yosef and how he made a mistake by telling the butler to mention him to Pare, because he should have just trusted Hashem. The question I have is, what can we learn from this? Aren't we supposed to make a vessel to get the blessings, or just sit back and trust Hashem? Great question. But, Chassidus, what about? Chassidus has an answer. So let's start with the first place, is a mimer, from the Altar Rebbe, but the Baradichus is in Tedus Chaim, Parsha Vayechi, and the Posseg Ben Peris Yosef, Chapter 13, that the Mitla Rebbe discusses this. 
And in later Maimorim, we have the Maimor Velei Zohar Tof Reish Ayin Zayin from the Rebbe Rashab and Tof Reish Peiches from the Friedrich Rebbe. Very powerful, actually relatively short Maimorim. Briefly, what they say is, ask exactly this question. And they bring the different commentaries. They even say there's a shibur, some of the commentaries suggesting that he did not rely on Hashem. But it's not true in the Medrash, where Rashi takes it from, it says he relied on Hashem. So what was the problem? The problem was that he also relied on the Saramashkin because he was looking for how is God going to, how is God going to save him in a natural way? What are the sibis that God will use? We see by Yaakov, for example, he prayed to God, but he also looked to find Bederachateva. We have to always find ways that we can do to make a keli for God's response to us. So then the question only magnifies why would Yisrael be punished for this? He made a keli. The Saramashkim, he saw that opportunity. The Saramashkim should remind him, and he asked him to speak to Pari for him. And he depended on it. Not in negating God, but that's how God was working through this uh, butler, through this, uh, through the. The, 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 what the, what did I want to say? I want to say the bar attendant, Sarah Mashka, minister of drink. Okay. So this question is asked. So they bring the Baha'i, the Baha'i who says that, that Yosef absolutely trusted in God. And the problem is that he also, he shouldn't have necessarily trusted on this butler. He shouldn't have even relied on that. But then they ask the question, it says that looking for Sibis is very much part of the Aved. I just mentioned Yaakov even by tzaddikim. And the answer that Maimorim give, which is essentially one nekuda, even though there are different variations of it, is that it's true for tzaddikim, regular tzaddikim, yeah, but there are tzaddikim, like Yosef, that come from such a high level, that even relying on a siba was already somewhat of a compromise. That's the bottom line. The Rebbe actually has a letter about this as well, from a base kiss of Tavshin Zayin. It's printed in the Kutta Sichus Chelik Tezvav, volume 15, page 486 and 47, and Igris Kedesh, the Rebbe's letters, volume 2, page Kufpei Kufpei Aleph, 180-181. And the Rebbe brings these memorandum that I mentioned and about the Levushim, but he brings also this point that that, that the Yosef was on this higher level and therefore he didn't even, he should not have thought that there's anything that he's missing. Yaakov thought, maybe the chet, the sins caused me not to merit the blessings. But Yesuf did not have any of that. Yesuf should not have had any type of issue due to the level of his neshama that he, as opposed to the forefathers, or he was not a shepherd. I mean, he began as a shepherd, but later went into Mitzrayim and lived in Mitzrayim and he was able to serve God even with all the hoo-ha and all the distractions of the marketplace and ever saudits of the decadent and depraved country. He was able to maintain it, so a person like him should not have needed even that type of keli which is the Saramashkim. Okay. What does it mean for us, however? That's the question. What does it mean for us? So the Rebbe once told the story a number of times that God blesses in everything you do. That means you have to make a keli. But making a keli has many levels. The Balshamtav, the story goes, as the Rebbe tells it, would needed something. He once went out, knocked on a window of the person that he wanted it from, and walked away. He's telling me to ask him, if you need it, why don't you wait? And if you're waiting for God to answer, why'd you knock in the first place? Well, knock and not wait. So he said, I made my keli. 
Now for the Baal Shem Tov, that's enough keli. For others, have to wait. So the lesson from Yosef is that we have to know that says Chesidus, even when you make a keli, this is in Sagalachas Mitzayda and Derech Mitzosecha and other places, it's not your keli that's doing it. It's God for whatever mysterious way, and there's a profundity to it that Tzemach Tzedek writes, wants you to make a levush. So the bracha should come through the levush. So sometimes we can say to ourselves, you know what, the levush does matter. It's not it's obviously God sends the blessing. Birchas Hashem Hitashir is the blessing of God that makes us wealthy. But the keli also has value. My intelligence or my planning or my ingenuity. It comes a story with Yasef to show us that sometimes you have to know that there's no keli at all. And people on that level, even a, even a drop relying on that is already some type of weakness. So obviously we can't do it like Yasef or the Baal Shem Tov. But we know that when we do make a keli, it has to be with the same attitude that the keli is not the key here. It's God's blessing that's the key. And then each of us can aspire to the level of Yasef, the fiyerach, relative to each one of us. We have it, Badakus, where sometimes we rely too much, like Mishrech Shalelishma. Some people do, do create, and they become very consumed with the keli that they're creating. And as the Chassidus explains, that's a mistake, that's wrong to do. But you learn from this how we have to constantly climb and realize that's the bracha of the Ebishter that works through all these levushim. And there are people actually that even the levush is something they shouldn't even have looked at, which was what Yesav did, and that's why he had two extra years to teach us this lesson. Okay, now let us go to the essays, three essays. First is Peripheral or Primary, Two Paradigms for Life by Yossi Grosbaum, age 38, Folsom, California, Chabad Folsom, Executive Director. I believe he was a second place winner a few years ago. Okay, so he writes, Introduction, as children grow and mature and begin to become more aware of their appearance, many begin to develop negative body image. In recent years, the prevalence of advertising featuring unnaturally attractive models, along with the ubiquitousness of social media, has greatly exasperated the challenges of maintaining positive body image. This essay will highlight the attitude of chassidus toward the body and explain how to reframe our attitude toward the body in a constructive manner. Talks about being bombarded with perfection, the peripheral presence paradigm, the root principle of Teda as blueprint of creation regarding this matter, to elevate the soul over the body, the unbreakable soul, maintaining meaning to overcome negative body image, and concludes with a practical application of this interesting topic, very creative, well, well done, well written. This essay and all these essays, these are already the last essays we're reading before we will be launching the new 2019 contest very shortly. You can begin preparing and writing if you like even. I'll be talking about it more in the coming weeks. So this essay can be accessed at MeaningfulLife.com slash MyLife, as well as other essays that I'll be reading now that as they're posted. Or if you subscribe, and if you subscribe to our emails, we send out a notice when these things are posted. Essay number two for this week is Attaining Inner Happiness. Sarah Chirek or Chirek, I apologize for my mispronunciation, age 16, Brooklyn, New York, student, Bernays Menachem. Many times one may think to themselves, how can they attain happiness? So one may buy a new car, a new outfit, or get the newest technology that's out there. But does this really make them happy? And goes on to use the Chet Eitzadas as, um, as an example of its the temptations that we all face, and then goes on to explain, according to Chassidus, how we deal with finding a true inner happiness.
using the Semach Tzadik's thing good will be good, plus a bunch of other sources from Hayyim Yem and from Lekut yeah, well, 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 well sourced and annotated, with bullet points at the end of actual actions that can be done. Try to focus on others instead of satisfying yourself. Remember that Hashem wants only good for you. Find Hashem in every situation and a bunch of other very good bulleted points. Okay. Next essay is, third essay, Unknown Identity Syndrome, Mendel Brackman, age 20, Westminster, Colorado. Student, Yeshiva, Maristown. Okay. So he writes... Imagine someone that's in the middle of the latest internal battle with himself. He has both sides lined up to present their case, and he's telling himself it's going to work out, just carry on. Then suddenly that one side gets, the little bit, gets that little bit stronger. So he tells himself it's not, going to go, it's not going to just go away. If I hold back for now, it's stuck with me forever, so I'll just give in already. And he's forced to make a choice. Goes on to explain this type of challenge that all of us face, and uses Torah, um, Siddhis, and one of the main themes of Chassidus, of course, Mashiach, in addressing this topic. Using a f- futuristic model, where when you use that model, you're able to give you more strength to deal with challenges of this nature. And then brings it back to discussing how it was done uh, in synopsis, a person may truly have an identity issue which he thinks must control his life because he thinks that he can't all of a sudden drop half of himself. So to stop feeling selfish and worldly is impossible. But with a redefined understanding of what is a person, that is not a decision that you can be decided in the moment based on your feelings. And that's why you need to bring God into the picture the way Chassidus explains the neshama inside of you and how you have many reasons to be happy serving God. Okay, so with that we conclude the essays. We conclude this episode. Everyone, Afrelech and Chanukah, Afrelech and Zeis Chanukah, may we take this light, may we take this energy, and spread it through the whole year, as the Rebbe emphasizes many times, that Chanukah, it does not have an Isra Chag, because Chanukah's light continues on all year round. Not with lighting a light, physically, and a mitzvah of lighting a light, but taking the energy that empowered us, and the Neshama, and bringing it to the world out there, and in the way of your Futsu Menesech Chutzah, which is my Nesecha is like the Ne'er Shemen. Ne'er Shemen is like the Primi Satera. And Chutzal Pesach Beisim and Bachutz, we light it on the door facing outside to illuminate the world. And I think this year, probably more Hanukkah celebrations and more illumination, all countries around the world, everywhere. So it only grows, Moshurei Bizecha, that from these Nedes, which ain't a betel le'elam, that will never cease, finally we have the Nedes in the Beis Amidash, Ashlishin, the Meneda. In the third temple, which will be an, an eternal temple, and should happen right now, before even the end of Hanukkah. We're here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. My Life Chassidus Applied. We, requ- we need your support, especially at the end of the year, Hanukkah Gelt, to help us continue and expand this program. So please go to meaningfullife.com slash sponsorship. Dedicate a program in honor or memory of a loved one. Thank you very much for that and in general and everyone have a very again and and until next Sunday this has been My Life Chassidus Applied episode 239 good yontif and a good nechidish